Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith, and this episode is a special uncut version of our second YouTube show with the British Film Institute. Yes, you can watch us now. You can see it on the BFI's YouTube channel and join us for the next one on June the 23rd, 2020. Put it in your diary now. Meantime, enjoy these nice long interviews with my fabulous guests. Today, we're celebrating female directors and I have got some amazing guests for you. Writer-director Desiree Akavan reveals which scene she's most proud of in her work. That is my favourite thing I've ever filmed, hands down. Director Nisha Ganatra talks about her new movie The High Note, starring Dakota Johnson and Tracy Ellis Ross. It's really fun to be in the music industry, it's really fun to be in the film industry, and these movies really celebrate that. And we welcome our second ever man onto Girls on Film, writer-director and film critic Mark Cousins. We haven't seen the great work. My first guest is a brilliant actress who appeared in the film The Arbor, as well as other brilliant films like Never Let Me Go, The Falling and Sightseers. She's now taking the lead in a film called Days of the Bagnold Summer, which is directed by the in-betweeners Simon Bird. She is Monica Dolan. So Monica Dolan, welcome to Girls on Film at the BFI. Thank you, Anna. It's really exciting to be here. Oh, well, I'm a big fan of your latest film, Days of the Bagnold Summer. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful portrait of a struggling mother, and it's the kind of character who's normally the supporting role, let's face it, and it's so wonderful to see her right at the centre of the film. What did you like about the role? Well, I think I think the thing that I love about the whole film and the two characters is that they're both introverts and it's very unusual to see a film where both the central characters are introverts. And I hadn't thought of that. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. And um, there's so much heroism in that, actually. With Sue, she's a librarian, she's a single mum and she's sort of one of those heroes, really, who's who's kind of taken for granted but actually is she's sort of the bedrock of our relationships I think really and so much has gone on in her early life and in her teenage years that hasn't surfaced and hasn't been possible for her to deal with that being forced to spend time with Daniel over the summer I don't know if it would have it would if it would have come up otherwise so yeah, it's a hymn to the suburbs, really, and she's a suburban mum. I don't know why I just can't wait until I'm back. Because you'll be jet-lagged and won't want to come into town and you'll end up with no shoes to wear to the wedding. You know, what about those? No. What's wrong with them? Horrible. What's horrible about them? Everything. It's just a basic black shoe, isn't it? Exactly. I can't get anything right. You can let me wear my trainers. You're not wearing your trainers. Why not? They're black. Hardly. Tipexed all over with that awful morbid rubbish. It's not rubbish. It's metallic. It's not appropriate for a wedding. It's poetry. People read poems at weddings. Why don't I get some new trainers then? You are wearing proper shoes to this wedding. A wedding of two people I've never even met. You have met them actually, Daniel. When you were two, Judith saved you from choking on a grape. I don't remember. It was rather frightening actually. Your face went blue and your eyes sort of bugged out. 
I'm probably making her sound really boring, but she isn't. Not at she's, all. <laughs> uh, there's there's so much humour in her, and she's understated, but yeah, there's a lot of inner life in there. It's based on the graphic novel by Geoff Winterhart, mm-hmm. you know, so that's vignettes and it's in pictures, and you get a real sense of her inner life and what music she listened to when she was a teenager and how bewildered she is by her son as a teenager. And... Um, I think I read somewhere that the most likely person to watch television is a 52-year-old woman from the north of England, and the least likely person to appear on screen is a 52-year-old woman from the north of England. She's not from the north of England, she's from the suburbs, but I'm just really delighted to see her there. Mm. We did three showings at the London Film Festival, so it's great that it's been in a cinema, and I don't know if the word had got round, but by the time the film was shown for the last time the audience was full of sort of women my age and I think certainly unprecedented for me all of the questions at the Q&A came from women my age and we had a queue of people coming to talk to us afterwards to talk to Simon and I and um, one woman came up to me gave me a big hug and said I'm a librarian and thank you so much for representing me, (laughs) me on the screen I don't get to see myself so I'm just really delighted in, you know, the way that it's connected with people and that she's connected with people. So when you were growing up, what female film characters appealed to you? I asked you in advance about this and you came up with a couple of really interesting ones. Do you want to start with a Western for me? Well, yeah, I think because my main film environment at home was Westerns and my father was really into Westerns and my brother, I was completely elated to see Calamity Jane, for for one, Doris Day playing Calamity Jane, and also uh, the film True Grit, the original film, came out in 1969 with John Wayne. They were mad on John Wayne films, and I remember this film True Grit was on, and I, I said to my brother, is there a girl in the film? And he went, well, there's a girl in it, yeah. And then I watched the film and she was completely the emotional centre of this film. You know, she was she was the star of it, so... And it was all about her relationship with John Wayne's character, Rooster Cogburn, and how they influenced each other and how she changed him. And uh, But yeah, I mean, certainly in my household, it felt like an absolute triumph that this young girl was the centre of this Western. Women have no generosity. <laughs> Lord God, how they hate to pay up. A man will never work for a woman unless he's got clabber for brains. What about the $25 I paid you? What $25? I will not bandy words with a drunkard. (laughs) That's real smart. You've done nothing when you've bested a fool. And Calamity Jane, let's go back to that one. We reviewed that actually in episode 22 of Girls on Film, which was a musical special. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. And again, like you, when I was growing up, to see that character on screen, just so empowering, actually, and very funny as well. Tell, tell me more about why you love it. Well, Doris Day is just the most incredible performer. But also, also it's based on a real person. Calamity Jane was a real person. And um, it's just the life that she brings to it. And... She completely changes throughout the film and also I think it's it's so much about a female friendship as well and her friendship with Howard Keel's character as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really about friendship. It's about 
her discovering herself in a different way as a woman as well and you know how she might appear to others but in parallel with that is you know really her discovery of how she's flawed as well and I just loved her and she's got that she's got that beautiful romantic song Secret Love as well. Oh, what and a song. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. It's it's just so exciting to see a person who's so whole and the softness in themselves and that passion in themselves and and you know their sort of aggressive nature as well is and active nature is is just so thoroughly explored and she's just she's just such a whole person and such a huge personality. I mean fantastic performance, you know. Doris Day can do no wrong in my book. <laughs> and at all, talking of fantastic performances, you also singled out Catherine Hepburn in The African Queen. Oh, yeah. I think if I had to pick a favourite film, I think, um, I think The African Queen is probably my favourite. I mean, it's all about relationships, isn't it? And yeah. she's the motivating force. It's, all, it's so funny, but it's all about determination as well and not giving up and seeing a glimmer of hope and faith really and 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 driving through and I just love I mean my favorite three words that a man can say to me are you're the boss so (laughs) I, I I just I just love that she has such incredible what would you say leadership skills and um I suppose that he trusts her and you know she's the she's the initiator of the ideas and what to do and what we're going to do now and never imagines for a moment that that they might fail so yeah, and I mean what yeah. what an actress what an incredible performance phenomenal yeah phenomenal does anyone say you're the boss to you regularly <laughs> unfortunately not I remember oh. um I think I remember in a text like a younger a younger actor saying that and I remember having a very warm feeling yeah oh. <laughs> Nice one. Um, well, listen, I'm a, I'm a big fan of lots of your work, including in Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, where you play Alan's love interest. And I'm interested to touch on that, the fact that his previous on-screen girlfriend was supposed to be 14 years younger than him, and their relationship didn't seem very equal, whereas I really loved the fact that Alpha Papa, he feels like he sort of met his match, and you're, well, you're his intellectual superior, really. But, um, you know... <laughs> but, it's probably uh, not hard with Alan Partridge. No, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's a not, it's, I really love the dynamic. Could you speak a bit to that and the kind of conversations you had? Well, um, with, with all of that, lot, you know, lots of it came from improvisation. Uh, I remember doing a read-through, and I think it was... 150 pages then it got cut down to maybe 90 pages or something then we did a week of improvisation and I think it went up to 200 pages and we did a read through and it was like well I've got a beginning and an end now but where's the middle I think I do remember being quite forthcoming and um, North Norfolk Digital was being taken over wasn't it and I remember I came up with a self-help book a really slim self-help book called Who Moved My Cheese that I thought Angelo might have, you know, because everything was changing for all of them at North Norfolk Digital. And she struck me as a sort of person who maybe, you know, needed some a bit of help, let's say, coping with change. So maybe, you know, sometimes there are certain go-to scenarios that um, perhaps male writers might think of straight away. And uh, those writers were terrific, Uh, Because I remember I came in with that book. I think they could see that I'd made an offering. I absolutely had not a clue what to do. And 
it became very clear that the way that it was going to work writing-wise was that they were going to pick up on what I was doing and that then from the scene that they, they had written, I would pick up on what they were doing and then we could create the next things as, as we went along. But, yeah, one of the twins came and, and, you know, really made himself very vulnerable and just said, look, we recognise that we could just have her being the... I don't know, the the jump-off point for all of Alan's antics and she could just be all the feed lines and that's not what what we want and we can see that that's not what you want. So, but I think, yeah, you, you know, you've got to kind of be brave, I guess, and make a bit of an offering and just say, okay, this is my starting point. And, but they they were very open about talking about it and, they, you know, I think they could see that there were scenarios that, that I just wasn't going to be interested in and they and they respected that so yeah well bravo I had a feeling you might have had quite a strong <laughs> hand in that so well, well done you know the thing is if it's improvisation if it's coming from improvisation yeah. you can always have a hand in it and I would say mm-hmm. that rule number one is to be there be there in rehearsal uh you know be if you if you if there's anything with the script then then say something you know with Bagnold as well right at the beginning who you know here's the book here are my post-it notes that I took to Simon and I said oh I think there could be more of this or more of that and luckily he was open too and you know we're we're all part of the creative process and really everyone you know unless they're sort of some egotistical tyrant uh, everyone wants to make it better so it's your job to contribute. I see my job as to contribute. Certainly with, with those two scenarios, I didn't experience any problem from the other people with that, from the from the other creators or artists. And, you know, my job's to contribute and I will... It isn't my job to please the other people in the room. I'll carry on talking. If, yeah. if they want me to shut up, I'm afraid I'm going to carry on contributing until I feel that I've done my job because... It's about my connection with the material as well and with the rest of the collaborators. And I'm not just there to please people I'm, I'm <laughs> at all. I'm, I'm there to make the work as, as good as, yeah. as it can be how I see it. So, yeah. Well, you, you've worked with female directors, obviously, like Carol Morley in The Falling, which I love. I love Do you too. have any kind of sense that, that women direct differently? Is that a terrible cliche? I think I think, I only think in terms of, people directing well or badly and um, somebody directs well if they have a rounded sense of humanity I think and we can experience uh, prejudice or narrow narrowness in all sorts of unfortunately surprising places I'd like to work with more female directors I'd like there to be more of them definitely Um, I'd like uh, female directors to be more acknowledged I have experienced it, unfortunately, where I've been sent my CV to approve it and the female directors have been airbrushed out of it. And I've written back and said, no, you know, I want to... These are important directors and I couldn't see any reason why they'd not been included at all. Um, Did did they recognise that that was the nature of their bias when you pointed it out? Do you think it was conscious? Um... It's really difficult to say whether it was conscious or not, but the fact was it was there. And I would urge female actors and writers and, uh, you know, just creatives everywhere to, male or female, to notice the absence of things as well as 
noticing what's there. Notice how things are being loaded or how things are being said and what's not being said, because that can be where the, where the prejudice manifests itself, actually. Very well said. Very well said. It's worth <laughs> examining all these things. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to compliment you in W1A, which is oh, just fantastic you. and hilarious. I wanted to, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but have you ever been in any real meetings like the ones in the series? Yeah, I have. I mean, weirdly, it's kind of, it's sort of, sin- I, I, I wrote a play that I took to Edinburgh and then went to the bush called The Beast. And um, occasionally, just occasionally, when I, I've been in a meeting, you know, maybe development meetings, so, sometimes I sort of think to myself, gosh, we're really having a W1A meeting right now. And don't some of you feel slightly self-conscious that we're in a meeting like this and you're, <laughs> and you're talking to me? And, um, but that, that, yeah, that, that's sort of occasionally. But, you know, I mean, yeah, John Morton, he just has a quality of the seer about him and puts his sharp finger on a lot. And I think that... Certainly, we wouldn't be depicting those meetings, and uh, so many people who worked at the BBC wouldn't be saying it's like a do- you know it is a documentary yeah. if, if those meetings didn't happen. I think that even now, actually, that um, in the BBC they'll send each other memos saying that's a bit W one A. So you know, art imitating life, imitating art. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, brilliant. Or was there anything else you wanted to leave the girls on film viewers with before I let you go? Well, I've during lockdown I've been quite busy. I suppose I suppose I've been surprised at how busy I've been. There's a, a series of plays, digital plays that are coming out um, under the umbrella title Unprecedented, and mine's called Home. I'm doing that with Alex Lowther. It's a two-hander. Yeah, and I'm one of the. I'm lucky enough to be one of the uh, Alan Bennett talking heads that the oh gosh, BBC yes. are doing. So that yeah, that was pretty extraordinary. That was. Um, I rehearsed with Nicholas Heitner on Zoom and it's because all these amazing people are available, you know, like uh, Jacqueline Durham, who won an Oscar for the costume design on uh, Little Women and Naomi Dunn, a makeup designer. And yeah, I was, I was working with all of them, but on Zoom and I couldn't do my makeup myself or anything. I, she had to guide wow. me. So they were giving you tutorials like, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, you do makeup tests. Actually, Naomi was really excited at how authentic the makeup is when you do it yourself. But I know oh, right. that we, we, but we filmed it. We filmed the Talking Heads socially distanced, so there are going to be a lot of very, very, very much more articulate makeup people when we come out the other end of this. Because <laughs> that you know, if they saw a bit of hair or something, they'd have to just go. It's just there. Just move your hand to the right. Just, just press it. Yeah, just pull it. You know. So um, you, you have you. They just wanted to come up to you and kind of tweet something but they couldn't come anywhere near me obviously so it was really fascinating doing that so so that was just a day's actually you know sort of socially distanced Mm. filming and working with people and it's quite a windy corridor around um around the EastEnders set because that's that's where we did it yeah um so I had to keep singing so that people knew that I was coming so that they could stay two meters away it wasn't very inventive of my songs but so yeah that was a really interesting thing to do but it was it was just one day's filming and the, and the rest of it took place on zoom yeah i can't wait to see it well, yeah. well done for keeping busy and thank i can't you. wait to see it's what you do next oh yeah. thank you anna <laughs> Bravo. Thank you. and congrats again on days of the bagnold summer and um, do come back on girls on film again sometime We'd oh like that's that's really nice of you <laughs> thank you so much for having me thank you thanks a lot My next guest is a groundbreaking female filmmaker. 
She also wrote and starred in Appropriate Behaviour, which is a story of an Iranian-American woman coming out as bisexual. Her next film was The Miseducation of Cameron Post. She directed that and it stars Chloe Grace Moretz. You might have seen her on TV in The Bisexual with Maxine Peake. She is Desiree Akavan. Desiree, it is such a pleasure to have you on Girls on Film. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here in my own home, in my living room. In your own home. And you're in New York right now, right? Yes, I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah. How are you doing over there? Big question. Uh, it changes by the hour. I know the feeling. Uh, you know, hopeful and uh, unfocused and heartbroken and inspired and confused and Sometimes horny, sometimes horrified. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm a lot of ways. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah. A mixture. Up and down, definitely. But kind of excited that we're able to do Girls on Film from home and to actually yeah. speak to people in other places like yourself. So It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's kind of really nice to connect with people this way and to realise that you don't have to be in the same room. So as you know, I am a huge fan of your work. And The Miseducation of Cameron Post actually inspired an article that I wrote a while back. It's currently on Netflix, if people want to watch it over here. It's about a gay conversion centre, which is fascinating. But I was also very interested in how you used sex scenes to tell a story and to colour the characters. It inspired a piece I wrote for The Guardian about lesbian sex and the lesbian gays. Could you speak a little about directing those scenes and your kind of thought processes about how those scenes colour the characters? I'm so excited to hear that it inspired that article. I love that article. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm excited it's a dialogue that it feels like a lot of people are here for. And I think female pleasure in general is something that we don't see on screen a lot and we don't investigate in life or on screen. So I've directed a lot of different kinds of sex scenes and some of them I'm in and some of them I'm not. I'm not in the ones in Cameron Post and I think that's why that film works. So with a sex scene, I think it's, as a viewer, I want it to be subjective rather than objective. I think you should be in the point of view of the characters. I think there should be a reason you're watching them fuck. Is it okay if I say fuck? Yes, as far as I'm concerned, yes. cool. (laughs) (laughs) So with Cameron Post, it was important to be in the shoes of those girls. And when it comes to the writing of it, the question is, okay, what am I learning in this scene about this character? Why is this scene here? And what part of her development is she at? What happens before, during, and after? But then in the execution of it, to me, it's very much about reading the room. As a performer, if I'm in the sex scene, I find that I want to choreograph it like a dance, know exactly where my body is going, exactly where my seed partner's body is going, really um, hammer out the details of that in a very mindless technical way and then once we have that down add the emotional context and I usually don't run it too many times like once I do it with clothes on physically get the movement down and then I don't want to mash out the magic that happens when you first find yourself well, so it depends on what the sex scene is. Like sometimes you want that vulnerability of the first time someone touches you. And then other times you want to feel like, oh, we know each other's bodies really well. Like John Dalgleish and I did a lot of work together in the bisexual. And by the end of that shoot, his body was really familiar to mine. I felt very comfortable with him. And I liked the familiarity that we had together. Whereas I've had some sex scenes where the nerves work and you want to feel like, oh God, I'm going to suck that in and hold that there. And (laughs) it depends. But with Cameron Post, what was so new for me is I had never not been in my own sex scene. 
the first scene that we did together, myself uh, and Chloe, I said together, we're not, I'm not in it. So we didn't do it together, but as a director and actor was uh, just a makeout scene with her and Quinn Shepard, who plays Coley. And I remember really feeling that Chloe did not want to be backseat driven, that she knew where her body should be. And so when it came to shooting the first actual sex scene, I didn't say anything. It was a scene in the uh, car park at the opening of the film where she and Quinn have sex in the back of the car. And I had a really specific idea in my head of what I wanted. But then once we were in the setting, my AD was like, well, here's your set. And it was the car and all these lights around and all these people and Video Village was like a stone's throw away. It was all kind of like claustrophobic. And I remember thinking, that's not how these girls should do their first sex scene. Like this just isn't conducive to intimacy. So I cleared the set. I put Ashley Connor, the cinematographer, in the front seat of the car. Her focus puller hid underneath the car. And then I hid myself and my whole, like all of Video Village and the monitor in a building nearby, like the, the high school where we shot prom. And I didn't watch a rehearsal. I didn't tell Chloe and Quinn anything. I said, you know the script, surprise me, and I'll give notes. We'll stage this after the first take, but why don't for shits and giggles, we just do it. And that first take was what's in the film. Wow, that's brilliant. But your sensitivity is clearly hugely important to making that work and your empathy with the actresses. How do you feel about men directing sex scenes, <laughs> particularly those featuring two women? I think I may know the answer to this, but you tell me. Well, first of all, it's hard to have this like sweeping generalization. Basically, I told a very long story that said, I read the room. What I just said was like a lot of words to describe that I like, I tune into the women who are going to be on screen. I tune into their bodies and I get a sense of like, well, how do you express yourself? And what do you need as a performer? You, we both read the script. We both know what I want. We've discussed this. And... I know what I need as a performer, but it's my job as a director to evaluate what you need. I think in general, that is not the way that men approach sex scenes. I think it's also not the way men approach sex. But you know what? Some of the men, like, like every dude is different. It's rude of me to make assumptions. But let's talk in sweeping generalizations because that's what interviews do anyway. So <laughs> we've got like an hour to, to make some crude assessments. Um... I mean, if we're going to, I feel like we're dancing around blue is the warmest color, yeah. which is the biggest example any of us have. There are so few films out there of lesbian love that hit the mainstream the way that blue is the warmest color did and get the kind of critical acclaim, but also pop culture like resonance that blue is the warmest color had. And when I talk about objective versus subjective sex scenes, that's very much in my head. I mean, what's crazy and what I think most gay women feel is that that film is actually really moving. It's a really good film, apart from that one scene. It's like it came from a totally different film, I felt. Suddenly, you're in this really weird, unrealistic, as it you say... It came from someone who had never fucked a woman as a woman. That's what it came from. Yeah. Like, authenticity really matters, and I think that's a really prime example of when someone who's not informed to that experience makes that film you can feel it. And sex scenes are so important that it can completely nullify an otherwise really powerful movie. And that's what I was saying about objective versus subjective. 
that is an objective sex scene. I feel like the thesis statement of the Buddhist woman scholar sex scene is how do women fuck? Like, is it just kind of a, they rub against each other? Is it a scissor thing? Is it a hand thing? What do we, like, like very technically, like how do we qualify? How do we classify? How do we identify lesbian sex from the perspective of a a straight man? of just being like, I just don't get it. Let me show you. It can be legitimate. And I'll show you from a like really far back lockdown wide shot that never gives you a sense of where either of their emotional journeys are at, never gives you a before, middle, or ending, just shows you factually what their bodies are doing. Couldn't agree more. Um, Let's move on to appropriate behavior, which I loved, uh, in which you also star. The threesome scene is actually used as an example in Women Make Film um, by Mark Cousins, which is a fantastic thing which we're talking about elsewhere in this show. The line about the olives in particular, they singled out as an example of of economy in comedy. Um, (laughs) So bravo. I'm like one bad romantic encounter away from moving to France and changing my identity. Hmm. Do you want an olive? No, I'm okay. But maybe I should go to like a less glamorous place like Slovenia or something where my chances of popularity would be greater. Hmm. They're really good. I'm okay. Would you like some wine? Yeah. Why are you giggling? (laughs) I've been plotting on how to get you to eat one of these olives because they're covered in garlic and we've already had some. Oh. I guess it's sort of an all or nothing kind of thing. It is a brilliant, funny, painful scene, all those things. Can you talk us through a little bit about the background to that scene and any thinking you had regards to economy, whether you do think or whether it's instinctive? I think economy comes with rewriting. Right. That at first you have to just shit out everything that's in your head, everything like your hopes, your ambitions, your aspirations, your thesis statement. And then with each pass you go through and you consolidate and you say, what is the most efficient way to use time? What's the most efficient way to use a face? What's the most efficient way to use a joke? And how do I communicate this exposition while communicating tone, while communicating the absurdity of the situation and also have like a bit of honesty and emotional like truth? Right. Yeah. I'm just thinking of all your films and how you do that so beautifully. I also want to credit Cecilia Frugiuele, who is my writing and producing partner. And that's something that we do as a team. It's not something I do alone. And I get credited for a lot of the work she does. And I think it's about like our two heads being like, for years with each project, just like, what, like the olive thing is, is, you know, a really good example, I think, of trying to communicate 40 things at once. But I will say, okay, I'll say this. That is my favorite thing I've ever filmed, hands down, that threesome scene. I've never had such a clear trajectory of, like, intention to product. You go on a journey, like, you have an idea of something, and then it takes you for a loop, and then you, just like in life, like, you reassess your goals, you reassess your taste, and you adjust for the reality of life. And that threesome sequence is just one of those things, like very rarely, that you have in your head and you execute and it's even better than you could have imagined. The the stars somehow align. And well, well, it's funny because when we 
and it was a note people whenever we got drafts like an ep kept reading it and saying like i think you should cut the threesome it was something that i fought for i'm so glad you did because it's interesting you say that because it is definitely one of my favorite scenes that you've ever produced and it's it's always been in my mind when i think about the film because there are so many different things going on and so many layers to the story that are unraveling as they go back and that say about all the characters particularly when they're back at the flat and the awkwardness starts to set in i just thought that was fantastic thanks i think the reason why that's such an important sequence to me and the reason why it is one of the things I think about that confirms that like I'm doing what I meant to do in life or that I'm, I'm on the right track, even with whatever roadblocks is it was a difficult thing to shoot. Like, so the, the olive scene, like we were just tired. It was just the admin of doing things, whatever. Like that was just another scene we shot. But when we shot the actual threesome, I would watch like the first take of every setup so I could look at the frame when we did that film. We shot it really quickly um, in 18 days. And so there wasn't a lot of time to review performance, but I would, the frame was moving a lot in that shot. So I watched the first take and then I excused myself and I just had a complete meltdown in the bathroom. I remember thinking, you've gone too far. Like, this is pornography this is gross you're gonna like really shame yourself in front of your family and you will never live this down like I just had like a huge just like you know when the reality of the situation like you're aspiring to something and it was my first film shoot but also it's like this could be a huge mess it was like really low budget everything about it was put together with spit and good intentions and when I watched the first take of that threesome I was like you've gone too far and in trying to communicate something really vulnerable and really personal and really shameful, instead of making it art, you've made it gratuitous. And like, fuck. I had that huge revelation. And then my producer, writing partner, Cecilia, knocked on the door. <laughs> and I let her into the bathroom. And she was like, trust me, you've got this. And I just took a leap of faith. And when I think about that moment with her in the bathroom, I really didn't think we had it. Like I really was like, what? I'm just throwing my body. I'm throwing my heart. Like I'm just putting myself in this position and I don't know what the result is. And the truth is I don't love appropriate behavior. I think it's messy. If I could go back, if I could, like when I watch it now, it makes me cringe. There's so much I don't like about it. But when I watch that threesome, I'm like, you had it. Like that is why you do what you do. You take something and you turn it into, like you take vulnerability. And to me, it was about sexual vulnerability. It was about like the way you throw yourself into and you throw your body and you throw your heart and you keep doing it and you keep doing it, even though it's like masochistic and it keeps fucking you over. But there are these glimpses of joy. There's these glimpses of intimacy. There's these glimpses of connection. And that's was, you know, what I wanted that film to be about. And it, it hits and misses different places. It's fine. But the fact that that scene exists as it exists to me was a testament of like that collaboration, looking at someone you respect in the eye and holding hands and leaping together. You should show her your latex outfit. You have a latex outfit? Yeah. Yeah, I have to oil it to put it on. Wow. Yeah, please put that on. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Drink? Yeah. Um, so, 
In what situation does a person find themselves in need of a latex outfit? Burlesque shows, play parties, all kinds of places, really. Oh. Um, okay, but, but here's my question. Why do the women have to dress up like slutty cupcakes? What about the dudes? Well, I have a latex outfit, too. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. And what a wonderful lesson to learn. <laughs> and I mean, I presume you took these kind of lessons to the bisexual the series, which people can watch now. It's currently on all four over here on the TV. And I've been enjoying watching that with Maxine Peake and yourself. It is painfully and sometimes hysterically funny. In terms of tone, what kind of comedy influenced you both for the bisexual and, and your other work? Um, I think I'm changing now. I will say, like, I think as... As I move on, I'd like to shift gears and find, I think my taste is changing is what I'm saying. And like, I will say in quarantine, I've been very much more about like Nora Ephron and like far more broad mainstream things. But when I was making the bisexual and the thoughts that went into it, I was really obsessed with Peep Show. I loved pulling. That's nice pulling because no one ever seems to talk about pulling, but I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I know. Why don't people talk about pulling? It is such a good show. Oh, and also The Comeback. Lisa Kudrow's oh, yeah. The Comeback was another show I really loved. Louis C.K.'s Louis. Those are all shows that really inspired me. Pulling has a really nice mix of both slapstick and intellectual comedy. They're witty, but they're also clowns. All three of those women. And they're different and they're ugly and, and messy and... There was a joy for me when I first watched that show of how absurd it was. And what have you been watching during lockdown? You mentioned Nora Ephron. Is you think uh, the kind of reassuring, comforting fair is what a lot of people need right now? I don't know what people need. It's funny, I'm, I'm asked a lot, like, what do people need? Like, what, what are your tips? Sorry, and silly I was like, question. No, don't be sorry. <laughs> like, people, well, I ask people what they're doing too all the time. So we yeah. have all this, like, voyeuristic, like, looking to our left and our right and be like, how are you quarantining? Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if I'm doing anything correctly in life. So it's weird to be like, here's my list. Like, <laughs> um, like crying in the fetal position. <laughs> Throwing yourself into horrible situations. Um, but I will say that, like, in terms of viewing, when I first started quarantining, I was I was really into, like, well, I'm going to watch all of this Iranian cinema. I'm going to become a real cinephile. I have all these, like, Criterion DVDs I'm going to make my way through. I'm, I'm going to, like, really dense, really intellectual. Like, this is my masterclass moment. And I hated all of it. Really? It pissed me off. I was like, this is boring. Fuck you. My life is already boring. I don't need more boring. And then like, also whenever I watched like Tony Monero and I was like, so angry. I was like, I hate you male narratives. Male na I have no room for these films. Like men are the worst. Like suddenly I became a lesbian separatist. Like my taste just like completely. So I, so then I started watching things I knew I loved from the past. I watched um, 20th century women again and I really loved it but like Muriel's Wedding like you know things like comfort foodie films I, I watched Fat Girl again like I I watched films I know that bring me a lot of joy and then I started re-watching Nora Ephron films because I suddenly had this idea of a rom for romantic comedy and I was like what are the greatest romantic comedies and suddenly I was like oh when Harry met Sally like that just really resonated with me and hit the spot. And I think it's going to be different for everyone what comforts them. 
Yeah, we're certainly finding on Gills on Film, the podcast, that people are looking for positive recommendations and things that make them feel a little bit more upbeat. I mean, that makes sense, obviously. But there's also never really sometimes always coming out in the UK soon. Oh, I, think, I saw yeah, that. Yeah, it's That's great, amazing. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not cheerful, but it's an incredible film. And it held, like, that's the thing. It's, like, it's very slow, but Eliza Hittman has, um, like, a real... It's not just poetry. Like, she... Her pacing is like music. It's... You can really sink into one of her movies. Whereas with the high art, you know, Iranian cinema I was into, it, it felt like it was, like, blocking me out. Whereas this, like, she invites you in. She has her own pacing. She has her own... Um, she's building to something. She uses tension, she uses time, and she uses space really beautifully. And that sequence, like the titular sequence where she's taking that quiz, is really something special. Amazing. It turns the whole movie around, I think, at that point. It's incredible. And you mentioned that you had an idea for romantic comedy. What are you working on? Is there anything that you can tell us? Yeah, well, I've been developing a script for years that... um, is not a romantic comedy. It's it's a Farsi language movie that I'll be doing with BBC. And it's, it takes place in Iran in the 70s during the Islamic Revolution. So that's something that I've been developing for a year now. And I finished my first pass and I put it aside and I was like, well, I'm not going to be shooting this anytime soon. This is just not feasible to like fly in Farsi speaking actors from all over the world, like go to, I don't know, Mexico city to shoot it for Terra and like do big crowd sequences. I was like, this isn't going to happen. But suddenly I kept, I kept feeling envious of myself when I was making my web series. I made a web series 10 years ago. I co-created it with my girlfriend at the time, Ingrid Youngerman. It's called the slope and it's really messy. And we shot it with no money and, we did all the jobs ourselves. It's like really rinky dinky, but it's alive and it really like utilizes its confines or restrictions. And I kept thinking, I wish I could rewind to that moment in my life. We would make such great quarantine episodes, like quarantine through the eyes of that couple in that series. And like, we were like a Larry David asked, like, homophobic, superficial lesbian couple in Brooklyn. Can we still watch this? Is it online? Yes, it's on Vimeo. Yeah. It's called The Slope. So I was like, what would that couple do in this situation? Wouldn't that be fun? But then it got me thinking, like, all right, well, let's, you do, you, you're still the human being. Like, what could you make with this? And then it was suddenly like, oh, what kind of movie would I, could I shoot with these restrictions? And what would I do knowing what I do now about filmmaking? And then suddenly this romantic comedy And I was like, what do I give a shit about in my life right now? Like, what am I grappling with? And it was like female competition. And it was like, suddenly all these themes started percolating. And it's so early days. And it's, I know other filmmakers would never talk about what they're developing as they're developing it. But I think it's fun to share and important to share process. And so that's where I'm at in my process. I'm putting together these ideas and it's like flirting. It's like dating, like it's early, early days. But there's something about, and by the way, like, I know if I were watching this and I weren't me, I would be like, oh my God, this person is writing something and developing something and using this time well. And it's like, no, I'm not using this time well. Like I've I've wasted a lot of time. I've like done a lot of freaking out. Like I'm, I'm not winning at my quarantine, but I also love the idea of not 
being attached to one way of making movies. I like the idea of utilizing restrictions, changing form, and being flexible, and also like making the restrictions the shining star of something. So that's where my brain is at right now is like, I want to be shooting, I want to make something new, it's been a long time for me. And so how do I create that situation where I'm able to, to make? I totally understand because this Girls on Film, we were meant to be doing shows on stage at the BFI and obviously not possible at the moment. So we're doing it online, but different things come out of it, you know, different experiences. So yeah, hopefully. And also you would never have such a cool couch at the BFI <laughs> stage, True. like a hot pink yeah. couch, I think is worth it. I'm glad you like it. I'm very pleased that it's we bought beautiful. this couch now. It's getting a lot of airtime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can, it's like yeah. a tax write off now. <laughs> Yes, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Thank you. I will do that. Um, is there anything else you want to share with the Girls on Film viewers? I want to give love to people and say, like, I spend so much of this quarantine, like, going into various downward spirals. And if anyone's watching and they're feeling heartbroken, uh, you're not alone. Put some music on a dance. Take a bath. There are some rituals that have really helped me, but then also sometimes it's a lot about like facing your sadness and facing your pain. And like, I spent a lot of this time facing pain. I know this is like not about film and it's super emo, but I would like to put out like a rally cry to film nerds out there and say like, you know, we're all connected by this love of cinema and this, there's so much vulnerability right now and I'm finding so much solace in movies and it, definitely my religion it's like watching and thinking and making and whoever is watching and thinking and making like my heart's with you well that's lovely thank you so much for joining girls on film death row hope we speak to you again soon thanks a lot me too we launched girls on film to amplify female voices but we also welcome allies and supporters including directors who make wonderful films about women One of those was Bo Burnham, who joined us on episode 10 of the podcast to talk about the brilliant film Eighth Grade. Another is Mark Cousins, who joins me now to talk about Women Make Film. Most films have been directed by men. Most of the recognised so-called movie classics were directed by men. For 13 decades, and on all six filmmaking continents, thousands of women have been directing films too. Some of the best films. What movies did they make? What techniques did they use? What can we learn about cinema from them? Mark, welcome to Girls on Film. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Anna. Well, congratulations on being the second man ever to be invited onto Girls on Film. We do make exceptions for allies, which I think you definitely qualify as Uh, after making women make film. Congratulations. Thanks. Thank you. It is an extraordinary piece of work. It functions beautifully as a guide to the art of cinema, as well as a tribute to so many talented filmmakers. Can you talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to make it and why in this particular style? I was inspired by making a mistake. In the mid-90s, we did a big season about the great moments in documentary history. And when I looked back at it, Anna, I realised there was only one woman in it. It was Barbara Coppel. And uh, this was 1996, I think. And I thought, well, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And from then, I started 
asking where are the women on these lists? Where are the women in the canon? Where are they? And when we do the national surveys of Polish cinema or Romanian cinema, etc. And once you're curious, once you've got an inquiring mind about a subject, you know, you keep going. And I kept going. And so for that several decades now, I just kept adding to the list of films that I'd seen and fallen in love with. Watching it makes you want to scribble down the name of so many films. I mean, I've, I've got a feminist film podcast, but there's still so many films that I hadn't seen that you'd unearthed these absolute gems. And I sort of started run out of space on the notepad. But I believe people can find out the list of the films on the website. Is that right? Yeah, there's a f- website called womenmakefilm.net. And what we haven't, because this film's showing around the world, we haven't written any text in English because people in India will hopefully look at it, etc. So what we've done instead is a visual representation of every film, a grab of a key moment from the film. So if you see something and you think, oh, that looks good, I must find out what that is, then you can go to the website and find the image, click on it, and you find out more about who the director was, etc. Excellent. And let's talk a little bit about your narrators, because you've got some fantastic women here. How did you select them? And how did you allocate who to what chapter? Because their voices seem to work really well (laughs) with the subject matter. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so the first criterion had to be that they're really credible women. They've done creative work in the film industry. And you can't sort of get better than Jane Fonda and Tilda Swinton and Kerry Fox, etc. The second one was, you know, because this film wasn't talking about the female gaze or the male gaze, at all it was a sort of non-binary thing it wasn't uh, the film wasn't getting into any generalizations about how women look then I was very interested in working with women who in their careers in cinema had challenged gender stereotypes and who more so mm-hmm. than Tilda Swinton and her androgyny who more so than Adjoa Ando you know who did that brilliant uh, all-female Shakespeare who more so than Jane Fonda or Deborah Winger you know with that voice that like a boy's voice you know and and so all these women had evinced and ploughed a career in cinema, evinced an idea that gender isn't easy to define. And that made them fantastic collaborators. Now, Tilda Swinton, I believe, was involved in the exact naming of this. Is that right? Yes, that's right. The film started, its first title was Eye Opener. We weren't going to mention that it was about women at all. We thought we would just let people watch it. And after 20 minutes or 30 or 40 minutes, realise that all the clips (laughs) were women. And I thought that, I think that actually would have been fun. But it might have also been, you know, trying to be too tricky, you know, so Mm. the second title was Women Making Film. And then when Tilda watched it, I sent her a link to it. And like within 14 minutes, she texted back saying, I'm in. And at that point, she said, why don't we call it Women Make Film rather than Women Making Film? And I really liked that because it's more of an exhortation. It's more a sort of challenge. It's a gauntlet thrown down. It's a call to action in a way, isn't it? It's a call to action, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that it it is true that while you're watching it, you sort of forget that this is about women filmmakers. You just get absorbed in it thinking this is an incredible film school and, and it's such a fascinating insight into how cinema is made. And that seems to me like a very elegant way of making a simple point. Were you keen not to be too obvious about it and to, to do it in that way that just kind of creeps up on people. Yes, I mean, I, I, we were really keen to challenge the received opinions, to be honest, Anna. You know, we I've heard over the years loads of people say Catherine Bigelow makes films like a man or women make women tend to make films about children or relationships. The more you look 
as you know, the more you find that's not true. Probably the best war film was made by a woman. You know, some of the great epics, some of the great history films. And so if you're curious about what you don't know, and if you go in with an open mind to a subject, like what really have women done from the birth of cinema to the present day. And if you don't go in with too many received opinions or expectations, then it's a plenitude. You've mentioned um, in the middle making of documentary about a revolution happening in film. Are you hopeful about a more gender balanced future in film, more recognition for films? Absolutely. You know, I'm all for 50-50. I'm more for, I have to say, 70-30 or something like that, (laughs) you know. But bring it on. I mean, and yes, of course, women will make shit films, but men have made shit films all our lives. And of course, of course, of course, you know, so that's fine. Absolutely. We need to force change through the industry. And thankfully, it's happening in certain countries. But I think part of the spirit of that change, part of the kind of ethos, part of the rocket fuel of that change will be knowing on whose shoulders we stand. And we can't fully articulate a vision for women in cinema if we haven't seen the great work. If you don't know that Kira Muratova is as great as Martin Scorsese, if you don't know the work of Binka Zelyazkova, then you find that you're making an argument that isn't rich enough. If we can say, look, despite the sexism of the industry, women have already made masterpieces throughout film history, then that enriches our argument. It makes it compelling. What's next for the film and for you? Uh, so for the film, it's going, it's uh, d- delighted, it's going around the world. It's um, sold to many countries, including surprising countries like China and India and Russia. And it seems to have hit a moment. It started before Weinstein, etc. But it seems to have hit a zeitgeist moment. So it's going everywhere. And uh, lots of countries are doing really big seasons, like buying scores of films or even hundreds of films directed by women to tie in. I think the country in which we're sitting, UK, has not done that. And so that's a question about our culture, I think. But most other countries who have bought the film have gone substantially with it. And as for me, I, I mean, I'm, I must say I'm enjoying the lockdown. I'm, my partner, she works in NHS, and so she's really plugged into everything. So my primary job today, like every day, is to put a nice meal on the table for her after a hard day's work. But beyond that, I feel as if, you know, I've got thinking time for the first time in ages yeah. and thinking time so valuable and it feels as if you're sort of, it feels fertile for me. I'm lucky I'm not sick and therefore I feel as if I'm planting seeds. Well, we can't wait to see what you do next and thank you so much for doing Women Make Film. It's a wonderful piece of work. Oh, Thanks what for joining a pleasure. So, so nice to have, I'm so honoured to be the second man. <laughs> well, you're most welcome. Thanks a lot, Mark Cousins. Thank you. Bye. Women make movies, great movies. They've done so since the birth of cinema. They've helped define the anarchic, androgynous rectangle. The movie screen. There are surprises in what follows. Let's start at the beginning. My final guest is a female filmmaker who's broken into Hollywood. She worked with Emma Thompson in Late Night and now she's working with Diana Ross's daughter in the film The High Note. She is Nisha Ganatra. 
Hello, Nisha. Hello. Welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you so much. We are absolutely thrilled to have you on this show. And like Late Night, The High Note is such an entertaining film written by a woman, directed by a woman, starring two working women, diverse cast of different ages. Congratulations. It's what we love to celebrate on Girls on Film. Oh, thank you so much. It's what I love to drag, so Well, good. I can tell, and you do it very well. I grew up around music. It's my whole world. We got one more song for y'all tonight. If you told 12-year-old me that one day I'd be working for Grace Davis, she's an icon. You okay? Do I not look okay? No, you look great. I'm amazing. I know you think that she's going to give you this life-changing shot. Make you her producer. Yes. This woman doesn't even know your last name. She does. Sometimes. Hi. I want to go through my closet and donate things that aren't sparking joy. Joy. Joyful. So like Nate Night as well, this looks at professional relationships between an older woman and a younger woman. Why is that something in particular you're interested in portraying? I mean, I guess I didn't look at it so much like an older woman, younger woman, but more the women we grew up watching and admiring. And the sort of unique, fun thing about our industry, I think, is that we grew up as fans, right? Like watching these women and admiring them. And then one day we get a little bit closer to like, working in the same field as them. And then one day you're on set directing them or working with them or collaborating with them. And I think it's just a unique joy of our industry um, that, you know, like if I had told 10 or 12 year old Nisha that one day she was gonna direct Emma Thompson or be on set with like Tracy Ellis Ross, it was like not in a million years would I believe that, you know? And so I think there's just this really fun aspect of, it's really fun to be a musician. It's really fun to be in the music industry. It's really fun to be in the film industry. Um, and television and these movies really celebrate that. You know, I think there's so many times we see movies about musicians and music stars and it gets pretty dark and, and sad. And this one is really just celebrating the fun and joy and, and hard work of our industries. And so I think to me, it was just that aspect of being somebody who is outside so desperately wanting to be into some industry that has, wants very little or nothing to do with you. Which of course, Dakota Johnson's character is as an assistant. Yeah. Trying to be a producer, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's a lovely journey. And I'm sure a lot of people will relate to that of trying to kind of get a leg up in an industry. Something we all know a little bit about. <laughs> exactly. There's a really striking scene where as Grace, Tracy Ellis Ross makes a statement about how only five women over 40 have ever had a number one hit. Yeah. And one is black what an astonishing statistic and, and have you found that a lot of people have actually been surprised to learn that through your film yeah people are really surprised to learn that and um it is an astonishing statistic and also I think it's you know what you were saying before about like younger women older women there is something so important about both movies with that too is that there was that first generation of women that um were asked to make incredible sacrifices and what they gave up in order to sort of break the ground for us and how we come in with this sort of attitude of, you know, forgetting how much they went through and what their sacrifices were so that it was a little easier for us. And even though it's not easier really for Maggie or for, for um, Mindy Kaling's character of both movies, because there's still sexism, basically, it yeah. is um, easier in the sense that somebody paved the way and can mentor us. So to me, I think the thing I'm interested in with the older generation of women and the younger generation of women is how we can be each other's best allies or we could be each other's worst enemies. And I think both movies are really encouraging everybody to be each other's best allies. 
I love how both female characters go on a journey to that end throughout the film without giving too much away. Yes. <laughs> um, and talking of the sexism, just to go back to that, there's, there's a scene I really enjoyed in the high note where a supposedly hotshot male producer rather patronisingly invites Dakota Johnson's character to sit in on a session saying he likes to raise women up. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, that was Diplo. That was Diplo himself playing that part. He also improvised, you know, because right after he says, I like to raise, it's important to me to raise women up. He goes, come on in here, sweetheart. Yeah. You know, it just really encapsulated it all in this one kind of ridiculous character. Well, that's it, because, you know, we're always talking about how allies are important. But do you think, like, on a serious note, that sometimes there is a bit of box ticking that goes on by some of the men in the industry? And if so, what actually affects real change rather than that kind of tokenism? Oh, my God. You know, I mean, what affects real change is actually hiring women and giving them the job. Yeah. <laughs> they do have the knowledge. They do have the capability. We do have the, uh, the thing we don't have is the job. <laughs> so it really is yeah. just... Just hire them, give us the job. And then it's no more committees about what to do about this problem and committees about like diversity and committees about gender equality and gender parity. Just do it, just hire women. I love that because so often myself and other people go, oh, well, it's a really complicated answer, but you've just said, no, it's simple. Hire more women. Yeah, Brilliant. it's not really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and then it solves the problem actually for generations because then if you hire women, guess what? They get more experience and then they become higher level and then they can hire other women. And so it really will just end the whole problem if we just start there. Exactly. <laughs> now, female directors, there are some amazing female directors that perhaps some of our viewers don't even know their work. Are there any that have inspired you who would you recommend that we check out? Oh my God, so many. How do I even start? Yeah. Um, well, you know, obviously Lynn Ramsey and her visual style is incredible. Um, Deborah Granick for how she directs actors and, and is so truthful with her storytelling. Kelly Reichardt, who makes really beautiful, small, independent films that will just blow you away. Agnes Varda, if we go back, you know, um, Jane Campion, of course, I always watched her. Mira Nair, God, Julie Dash, Janet Livingston, Maria Magenti. I'm just trying to think of all at Tamara Jenkins, Lisa Chalodenko. This is a wonderful list. I'm loving this list. It's fantastic. So I couldn't agree women. more with all of them. Yeah, I watched all of their movies. Lynn Shelton, of course, was always somebody whose movies I had loved and watched. And Very sad news about her passing. So sad. I just still haven't processed it. If anyone were to pay tribute to Lynn Shelton and watch one of her movies, which one would you recommend? I mean, I know Hump Day was the one that got her attention at Sundance, but I always liked Laggies. Okay. But all of her movies have such a unique characters and they have a real freedom to them and it's just a a flowing that you know she's just there guiding gently but also allowing room for people to make up things on the spot and it just all of her movies have such a joyful feeling to them I think yeah. that would be great for now well said thank you for that and what is next for you because we can't wait to see what you do next if you're allowed to reveal it god what is next for me well I'm looking I'm back in television um hopefully with a bigger role like creating a show which I'm very excited about and you know, still reading scripts, it's it's hard to find the next movie you want to make. But um, the cool thing is there are some bigger franchises that are looking at women directors. And it was something interesting to me because I didn't ever allow myself to dream that way. I think that I just had closed that door in my mind without realizing it. And now there are all these incredible, powerful women running these studios. And so when Donna Langley or Liz Raposo or these, you know, these fantastic women who are incredible artists say, 
hey, there's a female director and why can't she do one of these big franchise films? It really just lifts you up in a way that you're like, oh yeah, I can do that. So I'm kind of looking at those two and, and thinking closely about which ones. Oh, so might you be doing a superhero movie or anything like that? May, I mean, I've always loved the Marvel movies. I even love some of those DC comic action movies. There's like the Transformers franchise. There's so many different really fun uh big big movies i'd love to see what a woman would do with the transformers right? that would be yeah, really interesting different spin i think i think they tried really hard to find a woman to direct bumblebee you know but now it now there's so many more women just vying for it so it's pretty exciting yeah oh good luck we can't wait to see what you do next and um, is there anything else you wanted to leave the girls on film viewers with about the high note or anything else just that i think the high note is a movie that celebrates women taking risks and it rewards women for taking risks so I hope the movie inspires everybody to just follow their dreams and take big risks because especially now, if not now, when? <laughs> I think we're all sitting in a time where we're like, why have I been playing it safe ever in my whole life? And now's the time. Just go for your dreams. It's interesting, isn't it? It's making people take stock of life and sometimes in a hopefully yeah. really positive way that will have great effects. So thank you for sharing your positivity about that. Oh, and thanks thank for you. a really enjoyable <laughs> film for joining Girls on Film. Thank you for your kind words. I'm so glad you liked it. Thank you. Is the food coming, sir? We've been over this. We are not a drive through Well, it should be. It could be. Oh my God. Is that Grace Davis? No. Many thanks for listening to this episode of Girls on Film. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and tell your friends. Girls on Film is an HLA production produced by Hedda Archibald and Jane Long. We can fix it up, Calan. Make it real nice. All it needs is a woman's touch.